welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lambert. Today, we get to sit down with Betsy Brenner to hear her very powerful story of eating disorder recovery in midlife. Betsy is a longtime tennis coach, retired hospital attorney, and the author of a memoir titled The Longest Match, Rallying to Defeat an Eating Disorder in Midlife. Her inspiring message is that it is never too late to be a work in progress, to love. Betsy is also an eating disorder recovery speaker, advocate, and peer support mentor who shows that it is indeed possible to heal from past trauma and become healthier in mind, body, and spirit. Welcome, Betsy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Well, we're certainly honored to to have you with us. And we know that the stereotype of eating disorders, unfortunately, is still alive and well, although we're trying to shift it. Uh, But the stereotype that eating disorders only impact young people. And we don't talk nearly enough about those affected in midlife and beyond. So thank you for helping us do that by sharing your story. So maybe let's dive in with a bit of background. In your memoir, I love the language that you used. You shared that the seeds of an eating disorder were planted throughout your life, but ultimately bloomed in your 40s. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit about some of those seeds? Absolutely. I, I have to preface that with the fact that in preparing to write my memoir, I went back and read through all my childhood diaries and journals that I kept throughout much of my life my childhood, teenage years, college years, young adulthood. And that's where I discovered so many of the seeds. Certainly I had some memories, but I could go beyond memories and recollections by actually going back and reading through my diaries. There is one thing that is important and a very important seed that obviously I remember without having gone back to my diaries But I grew up with a very controlling, rigid mother, and she controlled what we ate, when we ate, and how much we ate. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, here it was on a plate. She even put the milk on the cereal in the morning. So there was absolutely no way I could have ever learned how to eat intuitively. It wasn't like, oh, I'm hungry. I'll go get a snack. You know, I just ate what was put in front of me. And in those days, it it wasn't choices. This is dinner, even if it was something I didn't like. So that's how I was programmed from a very young age. And of course, then when I got to college and all of a sudden there was freedom around food and so many choices and variety, and I could eat when I wanted, what I wanted, that made me realize, wow, this is so different from what I was used to. So that's sort of at the foundation of everything, having never learned intuitive eating But some of the things I learned from going back through my diaries, I suffered from anxiety, which goes back to my parents' divorce when I was seven. And I think that anxiety was an important seed in the ultimately development of an eating disorder. I didn't learn healthy ways to cope with it. So that's one seed that was planted very early on. And those diaries gave me a lens into that past, the development of my anxiety And anxiety without treatment or a healthy outlet or understanding of it, certainly a major seed that was planted. Another very important, probably the most important seed is 
all I ever learned throughout the things I experienced in my life was how to internalize difficult emotions. So those seeds, anything connected to emotions were seeds that were planted throughout from my parents' divorce through many other challenges in my life. It was never modeled for me how we deal with feelings. I was raised in a way that we're always positive. We never confront any negative emotions or feelings. I thought being strong meant being always positive and never letting myself feel emotions. And I keep going back to my parents' divorce, but this is when I think a lot of things started. After my parents were divorced when I was seven, my mom went on as if nothing had happened. And here my life was changed forever, but I learned that when something like this happens, no matter how traumatic, we just go on as if nothing happened. So that was the beginning of literally 40 years of an internalizing any and all difficult emotions. I never learned how to feel. I never learned how to express or articulate emotions. So you do that for 40 years, something's going to give at some point. I went through many difficult experiences with grief and loss. And again, no healthy way of coping with those difficult emotions. And then through my diaries, I saw over and over and over comments, things that I would say like, oh, these pants make me feel thin. Oh, this makes me look fat. I saw things in law school. My boyfriend would say like, oh, let's have pizza tonight. And I wrote something like, I didn't want to have pizza because I had an exercise. I need to go to the gym and then I'll have pizza. At the time, I didn't think anything of that. I was an athlete. I had always, I was a nationally ranked tennis player and a division one college tennis player. So I always sort of had that athletic mindset as far as activity and exercise. But I learned from looking through those old diaries that it was connected to food and fueling that exercise. That wasn't the focus. So that really, I think, are the major seeds that were planted throughout 40 years. Wow. That is, there's so many powerful ideas and kernels to that story. One of the things that strikes me is you're describing the anxiety that you also experienced that you know, now a significant amount of time later, we know from all the neurobiology research that anxiety and eating disorders are so connected from a brain perspective. So I think looking at as from hindsight, of course, which is very different than, than being in it, thinking, oh, well, you had some predispositions for eating disorder behaviors to be in your life through that process, just in the, the description you gave. So how how powerful. And also my personality traits, just being an achiever, a go-getter, very hard on myself. Some of those typical personality traits also played into the situation. Right. All those those traits that we know are are wired right in there, right? That show up in that, that eating disorder garden. <laughs> so at what point did a did a full-blown eating disorder surface? I had this image as you were talking about, like how big could the rug be that you were sweeping all of these things under and that you were really, you learned to do that. You have to imagine at one point, some point that rug won't be big enough and something will will happen. So what what happened? What point did the full-blown eating disorder come up? I would say the perfect storm took place in my 40s. I will say the only time before then that I remember anything that 
happened that could have become a full-blown eating disorder is what, like I said, when I went to college and all of a sudden there was freedom around food and so many choices and variety. I started out great with that and really enjoyed it. And about two months into my freshman year of college, I specifically remember intentionally restricting. Now I was playing tennis for probably three hours a day. And I remember going through a phase in November, actually, when I was going to see how little I could eat, but it never took hold. I went home for Thanksgiving a few years. I mean, a few weeks later, I definitely had been homesick. There are issues going on with my parents. It obviously was my first way of using a behavior with food to cope with what was going on, but it never took hold. I went home for Thanksgiving a few weeks later and the eating disorder never became full blown. Fast forward to my forties and again, a lifetime of focus on what I was eating and how much I was exercising, but it never impaired my life in any way. So I got back into tennis in my 40s, started playing again and playing competitively, meeting a lot of great people is a wonderful thing. But it also, once again, became an outlet for anxiety and mild depression. And once again, it became a source, tremendous source of self-esteem. And at this time, I was a busy mother of three. I just loved doing the mom thing. I was on the go all the time with three wonderful children. They're all adults now. So that also was going on. It was never about me. It was always about my kids. What do they need? Where do they need to be doing the mom thing? And then this is, I think, what triggered the perfect storm. I was diagnosed with asthma in my early 40s, right around all the time that this was happening. And it was pretty much moderate to severe asthma. I had a, I had always been in excellent health. And one summer, all of a sudden, I started having these episodes of shortness of breath. And my anxiety going back was always related to health and safety issues. So here I had a significant health issue. It created a great deal of anxiety. I didn't know what was going on. I finally went through all this testing. It was determined to be asthma, but asthma wasn't one of those illnesses. First of all, I'd never had to deal with a chronic illness, but it was also one that wasn't black and white. It wasn't one of those illness. Okay, you have this, so take this and you'll be fine. It was very gray, not black and white. It was, well, let's try this inhaler and see if it works. Oh, well, if it doesn't work, maybe we'll try this. So I had no control and I had many serious flare-ups through those early years after I was diagnosed. And I felt very much out of control. It was really hard for me to one, learn to live with a chronic illness, learn to manage the chronic illness itself and the anxiety that came along with it and the feeling of being out of control, all of a sudden having this chronic illness, but I was so busy doing every all the mom things. And tennis, which again was back in my life as a way to keep my anxiety at bay, I would have flare-ups that were so bad I couldn't play tennis. I had no energy. I could barely get off the couch. My breathing was labored. And so what happened was I didn't have any healthy coping skills for dealing with the chronic illness and the feeling of out of control. And I'd just gotten back into tennis so and loved it. And when tennis was taken out of the equation, that's when the first real signs of an eating disorder that took hold and that was restricting. It was like, well, if I can't control what's going on, I can't play tennis. What can I control? And it was behaviors with food. And for me, it was restricting my intake. So that just took hold at that point. There was also some strain in some relationships that I don't think in and of itself would have led to the full-blown eating disorder. 
but definitely dealing with some strain in some relationships. And I was always the people pleaser. The relationships always had to be good. So I think it was a combination of all those factors. But at the root of it was not knowing how to rest, not knowing how to take care of myself, not knowing how to give in to an illness that was taking control over me. So I, I really think all those factors made for the perfect storm in my 40s. It sounds like it. I wonder if you can say a little bit more. I, I We hear that theme of feeling really out of control a lot in people's eating disorder stories, which makes sense. And I also think about as people look back and see the eating disorder as something that really seemed to provide this sense of control. I, I usually don't hear somebody say like, so I, you know, I decided to go do this thing. I decided to change my diet significantly, but it's sort of like a little thing that we change. And before we know it, whew, we are just captured by it. And it starts to feel, have this like side effect sense of control that feels really soothing. Does that resonate with you? Absolutely. I think for me, there's more to the tennis piece. When I got back into tennis, I just became more fit and more muscular. Not that I ever wasn't, but definitely more. And it was very noticeable. And I got all those positive comments. Wow, you look great. Oh, you're so good at tennis. You're back into it. And along the same time that all this was happening, I developed this intense fear of gaining weight. So that's where the tennis comes in and the control over food was when you took the tennis out and I felt out of control. And I, I think that fear of gaining weight went right along with all those comments of how great I looked. You're so muscular, you're so fit. So I think it all was in there together. So tennis was such a positive thing. It was such a healthy outlet and friendships and competition, but yet it was so intertwined with my eating disorder and going back in my earlier life, it was my only outlet for dealing with anything in life. So you bring it back as my coping mechanism and then you take it out of the equation what are you left with feeling out of control and fear of gaining weight yeah. led to the eating disorder? Yeah, absolutely. It does sort of illustrate the degree to which our social support or the sort of social applauding of fitness and weight and appearing a certain way, really kind of those echoes of the environmental parts that we think of that contribute to eating disorders. So that, that makes a lot of sense. What was it like to receive an eating disorder diagnosis as an adult? You know, what did you know about the illnesses, you know, the eating disorder illnesses at that time? And what was your reaction to hearing that now you had this other diagnosis? I had been seeing a therapist for my anxiety surrounding my asthma. And at that time, I was losing weight. I didn't need to lose. I wasn't trying to lose weight. It just sort of happened as I played more and more tennis and so the therapist I had been seeing who knew absolutely nothing about eating disorders suggested that I maybe consult with a nutritionist. So I had the number of someone for months before I finally got up the courage to call. And it was exactly 10 years ago this month, 2011, it was in November. My oldest was just off to college and my twins were in elementary school. And I made that call and it was at my very first appointment with her that I was diagnosed with anorexia. Now, I, like almost everybody out there who is not familiar with eating disorders, was in shock because in my mind, to have an eating disorder, you had to be a young, white, 
teenage girl. You had to be emaciated. I had all those preconceived notions. I had no idea that eating disorders came in all shapes and sizes across every possible plane. And so it was a shock and it was really hard to explain it to my husband. He came to one appointment with me and he also had those same preconceived notions. So not only did I have to learn about eating disorders separate from me, the illness itself, I had to learn about my own eating disorder and what recovery was all about. So I I learned so much. My dietitian eventually had me switch to a therapist who specialized in eating disorders. And that was essential. Of course, it was recommended that I go to a high level of care at one point, but I refused to leave my children. Again, I didn't know how to focus on myself and my recovery. It was all about my children. Fortunately, I was always medically stable. My life was certainly getting more and more impaired by the eating disorder, but I was medically stable throughout. So I had a lot to learn about eating disorders. I had a lot lot to learn about anorexia. I had to learn about myself and I had to learn what would be necessary for my recovery. So it was quite a shock. (laughs) Yeah, I imagine. How did others around you respond to this diagnosis? Friends or or family? What What was the general feedback that you were getting? Well, like with most mental illnesses, there's so much shame and secrecy. And I think especially when you're older, there's probably even more shame and more secrecy. So I didn't share it with anybody. I didn't feel comfortable because I was still trying to understand what this all meant for me. It was even hard to share with my husband, who's my life partner in every way, because I felt ashamed. And he also didn't know anything about eating disorders. But I certainly wasn't the type to tell my friends. It was a long time before I really tried to open up to a few people. It was very hard for me. And then I just remember telling a friend, finally getting the courage to tell her, and she'd been a good friend. And she's like, don't let that happen. And she didn't mean it in that way it came across. But again, I didn't understand until I started this process of recovery that this was a brain-based illness, a psychiatric illness. It was not my fault. Nobody's born with an eating disorder. Nobody chooses to have an eating disorder. It's recovery that is the choice. So I didn't really get a good response when I did finally get the courage to share with a few people. As I got further along in my recovery, I was better able to let a few people in. And part of my recovery was learning that connection and support are essential. And so that was a very important piece of my recovery. So I was able to then let more and more people in, but I didn't share it with anybody. And definitely people commented on my weight loss, but I certainly wasn't in any place to be, oh yes, I was just diagnosed with anorexia. Uh, It took a long time before I was at that place. So for a long time, my only support and the only place I talked about it were my appointments with my dietitian and my therapist. That makes sense. What about any pivotal moments or defining moments of recovery that you can can share with us that you think over your course of, of your experience that stand out to you? I definitely had a very pivotal moment that propelled my recovery forward by leaps and bounds. So I started my recovery journey when I was diagnosed in 2011 with weekly appointments and learning about eating disorders, learning about my eating disorder, learning what was needed for recovery, all that. I made very steady progress, baby steps, steps forward, always steps back. I received tremendous support and expertise from 
my treatment team, which was only those two people. And as things went along and I understood more and worked hard to recover, about six years later, I had a health scare, a cancer scare. A tumor was found on my ovary, which thankfully turned out to be benign. But the whole process from discovering that through ultrasound, not knowing what it was, facing major abdominal surgery. I'd never been in the hospital other than to have my children. Uh, it was one of the most scariest experiences I'd ever been through. My anxiety was unbearable. I got through that with the love and support of my family, my friends, which just emphasizes the difference between a physical illness and a mental illness. The people that couldn't be there for me with a mental illness, my eating disorder, were definitely there for me when I got home from the hospital, the meals, the gifts, the support, the texts, the emails, everything from those same people who weren't comfortable talking about mental illness. Um, but when I got the news after my surgery that there were no signs of cancer anywhere and that the tumor was in fact benign, it was a sense of absolute euphoric gratitude. Now, my recovery was already much stronger at this point, but this sort of propelled it as far forward as I could go. I I learned the hard way that I have only one body and I need to take care of it. It allowed me to focus even more on what my body could do when it is healthy. For two months, I literally could do nothing. Fortunately, my twins were in high school by that point. I had to let myself rest. I had to nourish myself with food, nurture myself with care. Without that, I wouldn't have been able to resume my normal active life. So I had a lot of time to think about what my body needed physically, mentally, emotionally. So that really was a turning point for me. And soon after that, I was able to write my recovery story and share my recovery story at treatment centers. But that really was a pivotal moment in my recovery journey. Wow, that's so, so powerful. And and so you have, you've written this amazing book and you, and as you say, you're an open book. What is it meant to share your story, to, to write it down, to put it out in the world, to share it with others? And how has that impacted your recovery? That's a great question. First of all, I will say writing my memoir was truly a silver lining of the pandemic. While I had always heard that my life story had the makings of a book, I, I was not one of those people like, oh, I'm going to grow up and be an author. I'm going to write a book someday. I never planned on it. And the pandemic gave me that time that I wouldn't have otherwise had because everything I was involved in was on hold and I was home winter in New England, you know, day after day. And I've always been a good writer, whether it was academically or writing a letter or whatever. I'd always been a good writer, but I had never planned on writing a book. And I started by reading through all my diaries, taking notes, finding quotes that I wanted to use. My editor who specializes in helping people use writing to heal from trauma. She herself recovered from an eating disorder at the age of 55. Her name is June Alexander. She's out of Australia. She has a website, The Diary Healer. She was my editor. And right before COVID hit, she had had me sort of map out my life. She's like, take bold colors on poster board, write all the important people, places, events, all that. And I was just sort of starting that process thinking, oh, this will be a long-term project. when 
everything shut down. So fast forward from March 2020 to January 2021, I wrote my entire manuscript one chapter at a time. Some days it just flowed and I wrote and wrote. Other days I knew just to set it aside. I never forced it and I wrote every chapter in order. And um, I remember I, I used a local publisher here in Rhode Island and their graphic designer in-house did my cover. And I remember before I released my cover on social media, which obviously has eating disorder in the title, I was so nervous because there were so many people in my life that had no idea I had struggled with an eating disorder. Certainly by that point, more people knew, but for me to put it on my social media. So just the anxiety of just literally releasing my cover only. And the response was overwhelmingly positive. So I'm like, I can do this. So that was like February of 2021. My book was published in May of 2021. And again, I shared it all on social media, did all the things you're supposed to do, have an author Instagram and a website and all these things I learned about. And I have to say, whether it's people close to me or peripheral friends or colleagues, just the response it's still surreal in some ways, overwhelmingly positive. And so many people have applauded my courage. They've wanted to read it. I've gotten the me too, you know, people who I had no idea had struggled with an eating disorder. All of a sudden they had someone to talk to. And for me personally, I think this answers your question. I decided to write it for two purposes. One was to heal on the deepest possible level from the trauma I had been through. And the other was to give hope and inspiration to others, because if I could do this, anybody could do this. So it definitely has served that first purpose, healing on a deeper level. I feel like I went through my life always sort of with a layer of sadness beneath the surface. It didn't keep me from accomplishing things in my life, but it was always there, this sort of subtle sadness. I really feel I have healed. It has been so freeing having my story out there, being an open book. Here I went from being such a private person, scared to even release my cover to just this sense of relief. It's almost like I was carrying this heavy weight of trauma and emotions and experiences. And by writing my memoir, that weight has been lifted. It is truly freeing to have my story out there. And as far as my recovery goes, it's just empowering. And it, every time I get to share my story or talk to people, it just makes my recovery that much stronger. So it has had just a profound impact on me personally and on others. I, I love waking up to either a text or a Facebook message or a Instagram message. I read your book. I never thought I, you know, could get through this. You give me hope. I mean, that's what this is all about. If I can do it, anybody can do it. I also make it clear it's not easy. There's no shortcuts. There's no switch that you flip. I mean, it's hard work. I, I don't make any pretense of like, ah, just do it. You know, it's easy. We wouldn't be having this conversation if it were, but it's been a truly empowering and freeing experience. That's wonderful. That's so, it's just spectacular. I have, I have two questions as we head toward the end of our time together related to what advice you have for people. So we're coming upon the holiday season. The holidays are quickly approaching. And I'm wondering if you have 
any strategies or words of hope or comfort for those who find the holiday season really challenging because of an eating disorder? What advice would you give? I can definitely understand so many holiday gatherings focus on food and the world around us, whether it's advertisements on TV or social media, it's all about food and the holidays and family gatherings and so many things that are scary for someone who's struggling with an eating disorder. Eating disorders are very isolating illnesses. So even just the social anxiety of being with other people, and then you throw in difficult relatives or expectations And I think it just compounds some of the challenges of having an eating disorder in the first place. So I I think the focus needs to be on recognizing how important self-care is and that it's okay to say no if an event or a person, a gathering is going to be particularly triggering. I really think it's okay to say no I think it's okay to protect your mental health, even if the people you have to say no to don't understand. I think it's important to have a routine. I think it's important to realize you can't do everything. You can't please everyone. And if it's, I think isolation is not good either. I think it's finding a healthy balance. What gatherings are you looking forward to? If it weren't for the food aspect, what would you enjoy? Focusing on what traditions, people, gatherings are most meaningful and let your focus be on those and try and be as present as possible. Make the focus on why it's meaningful rather than what food am I going to eat when I'm going to eat it. I think it's really important to follow a meal plan throughout the holiday season. If someone is on a meal plan from their dietitian, very important to follow the meal plan and um, and and it could be different for everyone, but find what helps you get through stressful times, avoiding triggers. And I think it's also really important to have a support person, someone you can reach out to when you are very stressed or you've just been to a gathering and you're feeling very triggered, somebody that you can reach out to, um, whether it is part of someone from your treatment team who's willing to or a close friend or family member, whoever it is, it may not be a family member, but someone that you can text sort of SOS in crisis. Um, I can't deal with this. Um, someone who can sort of help you talk through it. I also think when is having your own transportation, not being dependent on others so that if an event or holiday gathering is too difficult, you can leave. So I think it's focusing on what helps the person who is struggling because what helps one may be different for somebody else but trying to manage it and navigate it with support and focusing on what's most meaningful and nobody can do it all, even when they're not grappling with an eating disorder. Right, right. A really important theme to, to keep in mind. We, You often use that as some sort of yardstick of, am I doing enough? And and that is uh, that leads us into all sorts of unreasonable expectations where we put too much on ourselves. So my... My last advice-related question is, is a lot of people, I think, who may be listening to this or hearing or thinking about eating disorders in some other way, often will hear a story like this or read a recovery story or see something on social media, and they might be thinking, yep, that's fantastic and what an amazing experience. That's that's so cool, Betsy, but that is not going to happen for me. Like, I don't know anything different at this point in my life. I've had this eating disorder for so long or recovery just can't happen for me. Maybe it can for you, but it can't happen for me. 
What would you say to that person? I would say a couple of things. One, something I learned early on is that it's not enough to want recovery. You have to be willing to do whatever it takes. I'm sure that most people will be like, sure, yeah, I want recovery. Why wouldn't I? But I think for that to happen, and it is a long, difficult, windy, twists and turns process, you have to be willing to do whatever it takes. If someone's not willing to, to go down that difficult road, recovery probably isn't going to happen. So if someone can start the recovery journey, understanding that it is possible to heal from past trauma, it is possible to recover. But again, you can't tiptoe around the so-called elephant in the room. The only way out is through. And the only way to successfully move forward in the recovery process is to confront, whether it's the 40 years of internalized emotions or the past trauma, the ones who feel they can't recover may be the ones who haven't yet been willing to confront that trauma, to go back and talk about the different difficult events and emotions. And through my recovery process, and I think it's part of it will go on forever. It's continually unraveling the layers and layers of difficult emotions and past traumatic events. And if someone is willing to put in that work and it is work and there's always going to be steps backwards with steps forwards and recognizing that that is normal. If someone is willing to recognize how difficult it is yet still undertake those steps along that journey to recovery it is possible. It's not possible unless someone is willing to do the hard work. I don't think anybody wakes up one day and, yep, I can do this. I'm recovered now. They may have that motivation because of that. Like, I just can't do this anymore. You can't keep going forward without going back and figuring out what triggered the eating disorder in the first place and understanding that the eating disorder behaviors are symptoms. And it's what's underneath that one has to get at to be able to impact the behaviors that are at the surface, if that makes sense. So it is possible. My message is it's never too late to be a work in progress. I think we, I know I will continue to be a work in progress. I don't believe that this journey ever ends. And I think especially for women in midlife and beyond, there's been so many chapters in our lives, so many things to go back and either talk about or process. Professional treatment and support is essential. I don't think anyone can do it alone, but also having those connections and support outside the professional treatment team, someone who quote unquote gets it. And that's why I love mentoring. It's that extra support outside of the eating disorder professional treatment. So I think it's a combination of all of the above, but someone's gotta be willing to do whatever it takes. So much wisdom. Thank you so much. So where can people find you and find your book? Oh, thank you for asking. My book is available in paperback and Kindle version on Amazon. It's also through my website, which is www.betsybrenner.com. It, it, there's a link to the Amazon link. It's also on Barnes and Noble in Nook format. And I also believe an ebook through Apple Books. It's also on some local bookstore shelves here in Rhode Island and on their websites. 
But probably the easiest way is is through Amazon because it is either paperback or Kindle. There's a there's a choice, but feel free to check out my website, betsybrenner.com. Like I said, there's an Amazon link there. I'm on Instagram at Betsy Brenner Author. I love hearing from readers. I always respond to emails that I get. I love hearing from people and answering any questions that come up. That's just wonderful. Congratulations on the book and on your your journey. And thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's, It's truly my pleasure. You are welcome. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.